Grief Stories is not a crisis resource. Please seek support from a qualified professional in your area to meet your unique emotional and medical needs. You're listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard, a social worker with an interest in helping people find hope and healing when someone they love has died. In each episode, you'll hear a conversation with a guest sharing their story and insights about what can help when you're adapting to loss. At Grief Stories, we're helping grief make sense one story at a time. Today's guest is Mitch Konsky, author of Home Safe, a memoir of end of life care during COVID-19. Welcome to the Grief Stories podcast, Mitch. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. So here at Grief Stories, one of the things that we truly believe in and that is that storytelling is healing, that when people share their stories of loss, that it helps them make sense of what they've been through and their experience uh, also helps others. And so I want to invite you today to share your experience of loss. You've written a, a book about it and have been talking about it a lot lately. So I'd like to invite you by to start by talking about, you know, what was your experience of loss? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. For me, storytelling was the ultimate therapy. Uh, you know, my father was diagnosed with stage four cancer during the onset of the pandemic. So it was a couple weeks after World Health Organization actually declared it an international health emergency. So this was back when everybody thought this was gonna be a two week vacation and people would come back to work and school. Uh, so I abandoned my Toronto apartment um, towards the end of March, moved in there in the middle of April, the beginning of April. And you know, my dad, this is just when my dad was diagnosed with a very rare um, type of, of, adan- of advanced stage cancer. And so most of my family work in healthcare. Uh, among us, we have three emergency physicians. Um, we have a registered dietitian, a couple social workers, a uh, general surgery resident, a neurology specialist. And right when this was happening, my whole family had to reconcile the social distance requirements that the pandemic was imposing with a family-based approach to end-of-life care. Uh, so at first, there was all these these difficulties in terms of navigating that. But ultimately, what happened is my family came together and created this hospice at home. And this was a time of pajama dance parties and binge watching Tiger King and, you know, my whole immediate family living together under the same roof for the first time in almost seven years. And I think most of the time when, when someone we love is dying, there's still all of the pressures of the outside world. We still have to surrender to the hustle and bustle. But what made this experience so beautiful and surreal and bittersweet was the fact that we really had nowhere else that we needed to be. Uh, I'm a journalist, and so I leaned into my journalistic intuitions and I interviewed my dad throughout his decline. And you know, speaking of storytelling, my dad never really told many stories about his past. He lost both of his parents when he was really young, and he never really was able to articulate that pain and grief until he was dying himself. So through, you know, through exploring his own his own grief, he was also able to ultimately accept his own mortality. And it was this incredible experience, and all these beautiful, bittersweet moments really dovetail, dovetailed and, and punctuated our whole pandemic experience. And so this diagnosis came at a time when the whole world was shifting 
Right. And it allowed this space in your family for everybody to come together and face the challenges together, the challenges of end of life, but also the challenges of getting through the pandemic. Right. Yeah. It, uh, there was, there was difficulty in that, obviously. Um, you know, my sister right at the beginning, she, she works at a long term care home and her then boyfriend at the time, who is now her husband, uh, he was reporting to hospitals daily too. And so every time one of them came home and then threw their scrubs into the wash, the risk of the virus was reintroduced. Uh, you know, and it, it was scary at the beginning because here was my sister who finds out the, this shocking news about her dad. And all she wants to do is give him a hug and be in, the, be in our family home. Uh, and so that was, that's, that's really the, the underlying conflict at the beginning. Uh, but as we learned to navigate it, uh, eventually we, we were willing to compromise certain things, which I think you need to do. And we came into the home and, and you know, I think it, it was almost the absence of hugs really put it in perspective how beautiful it is when you're able to just wrap your arms around somebody. And yeah, that's that's what it did for us. Uh, so in, in many ways, the pandemic was a hindrance and it's, it, it, it separated us at first and it caused all these feelings of isolation, but it's also what unified us and brought us all together. Right. And it was sort of as a family kind of facing those realities and the risks and making those choices together about how do we compromise? Where do we make the compromises? And, you know, like actually hugs are pretty important and we got to figure this out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, yeah. it's it, it's a it's a it's a difficult balancing act because some people, you know, they're immunocompromised, immunocompromised and you have to be sensitive to that. And here's my dad who's also going into hospitals for his oncology sessions and he doesn't want to infect anyone else. And, you know, there's all these different considerations that have to come into play. Um, but, you know, ultimately when a family can come together in whatever way it is, that's, that's kind of one of the beautiful things that end of life care can, can open the doors for. And, and look, some people, you know, the, we got luxuries that a lot of families didn't. A lot of people died hooked up to ventilators in isolated hospital wings, right? And a lot of people were not able to hold their loved one's hands until their final breath. And that's something that my family was able to do. And, and so just realizing that blessing is, is part of what made the experience a little bit easier to bear. Yeah, absolutely. Because I think as difficult as our own journey can be, it does sometimes help us to have that perspective that other people have different difficulties. And so some of the things that we can, if we can remember to count them as blessings, even in the midst of difficulty, and sometimes that comes through comparing, then we can sort of hold ourselves with more compassion. Yes, 100%. Yeah. And that that compassion is ultimately what's what got us through a lot of darkness. Yeah. So some, you know, you all came together to face the challenges. You had some creative thinking and some soul searching probably too in those processes, right? And throughout this process, you're interviewing your dad and gathering some of his stories. And that process is helping him, you know, manage his experience and also reflect, right? Um, because when we know that we have a finite amount of time, we may not know exactly how much, but when we have a terminal diagnosis like that, um, we know we have a finite amount for sure. Um, it's brought right home. 
the opportunity to tell our stories, the opportunity to do that work of reflecting is so precious. It's so precious. It's, it's incredibly precious. And it also, I don't know, when I, when I look back on that, those two and a half months, because by the way, it was, it was very quick. My, he died about uh, two and a half months from diagnosis, uh, after diagnosis. And when I look back at all these precious moments, it didn't feel like such a short amount of time. It felt so full. There was so much going on, you know, and I write about this in my book. My sister got engaged on the last night of my dad's life, right next to his bedside. Uh, we held a makeshift graduation ceremony for my masters of journalism in his living room. He was still fully awake. He was able to clap his hands and be there. Um, you know, I remember I wore my high school graduation cap and my uncle handed me a rolled up piece of blank paper. And, you know, it, it was all these moments, right? And, and I think that when you come together and you have these conversations, there's this presence that shines through all the despair. And instead of looking at the eventual outcome and, and all the despair that this is leading to, you stop looking at it collectively and start looking at it as almost a series of individual moments Right. And it's it doesn't really feel like you have to, you know, gear up towards this grand conclusion because you know where it's going. You're sort of able to just look at it all in isolation. And when we did, it was it was full of these bittersweet, joyous moments that really allowed us to celebrate life as well as accept the end of it. Yeah. The ability to be with the pain of the losing. Yeah. And also with the joy of celebrating and honoring the love. Right. A hundred percent. Yes. Yeah. I have a friend who calls that the blessings of both. The blessings of both. That's amazing. I have, yeah. I have a friend who, and I, I write about this too. Um, he calls these Big Mac moments. We, we ended up, we coined that term together, but uh, he had a, he had a mother who was, you know, she, she had a long cancer battle and after surgery on a metastasized brain tumor, he began to accept the inevitability that this was the end. And she, at this point, had lost her ability to talk and, and, and move. And she really was just a shell of her former self. And, you know, shortly after the surgery, he approaches her in, in the living room and she sort of perks up. And uh, she looks at him with wide eyes and says, hey, Mike. And, you know, he, you know Mike couldn't believe that his mom was speaking to him right now. And she said, I'm really hungry. Can, can you go to McDonald's and get a couple Big Macs? And, you know, he's like, yeah, of course. And, you know, he goes to the drive-through and he gets a couple Big Macs and he comes back and he eats them with his mom. And, you know, he told me he'll never forget those Big Macs. And the, the reason that it's, it's so substantial in, in our memories because, you know, it, it stands as a, an in-between glimmer of return, right? It's... You, you know, the person that you're about to lose isn't yet completely gone. And, and you're able to sort of punctuate that progression, that, that eventual decline with a moment of real presence, a moment of return. And I think that those are the moments that's, that we should value the most. Yeah. And when we know someone has a terminal diagnosis, we have often, if we're able to recognize them and to be present with them, uh, we can soak those moments in. 100%. Right? Yes. You know, yeah. when somebody dies suddenly, unexpectedly, uh, or if we're really struggling to accept that we're losing our loved one, it can be so hard to soak those moments in. And those moments, those Big Mac moments are so precious. Yeah, they are. 
They are. And, and you know, that's, it's, it's interesting that you're saying that because that I think to a certain extent was one of the struggles with my family who, as I said, they all have experience in healthcare. And I think a lot of, a lot of the practice of medicine outside of palliative and, and end of life care, it's about fixing problems, right? They're trained in fixing the intricacies of the human body. And it's, it's difficult to therefore accept what's inevitable. And I know a lot of families, they will keep fighting until the end and they'll do whatever it takes to avoid the, you know, the eventual demise of the person that they love. And, and that's great and that's honorable, but it can also rob you of the experiences that can come with that acceptance. I agree. And I think you're right. You know, so many folks in the medical professions and medical adjacent professions are focused on cure and fixing because they're, we're so good at so many of those things. Um, But it sets aside the reality that death is actually inevitable. And so sometimes when we know death is inevitable and it's coming for our, our loved one, then how do we set aside that mindset of avoidance of fixing of the drive um, to be in denial so that we can um, try to grasp more time so that we can be present with what is what a challenge that can be for so many reasons for so many people. And I think that's why stories like yours are so important in the way that they show people the possibilities. If we can accept something that's inevitable then we can be present with it. We don't have to run from it or fight it. Right. We can we can allow it. And if we can allow it, we can have all of it. Yeah. No, it's so true. It's it's a type of surrender, but not in a not in a way that's you know, you're not you're not surrendering what really matters. You know, you're still you're able to hang on to these beautiful connections and and these these incredible moments that, yeah, it, it takes you out of the despair. And I think that when we allow ourselves to do that and we give ourselves permission, it is, it is transcendent. It is beautiful. Yeah. And when we have the opportunity to do what you, your family did for your dad, which is to give a good death, when we have the opportunity to provide that and to share in those moments that lead to a death where you've done everything you can to provide comfort and love and compassion to the person who's dying and for one another we have less regrets a hundred percent you know and and here's the thing a lot of a lot of people who have experienced grief and and have lost someone suddenly there it's it's impossible for them to reconcile and that that guilt or that regret in many ways is inevitable because they'll think about all the conversations that they could have had and all the things that they wish that they could have told them and I mean, that's, that is one of the blessings of, of living with somebody that you know is dying. You, you're able to say everything that you could ever want to say. And, you know, another, another point that I'll mention, and I, and I speak about this in, the, in this book, and I, I wrote an article in the Globe and Mail that touched on this, but it's the role reversal that emerges when a, a child takes care of a parent. Um, you know, for the first time, I was able to look after my dad in the ways that he would often look after me growing up. And that's something that I'm so weirdly thankful for. You know, it's as, as traumatizing as it was, it's, it's never easy to, you know, change your, your father's diapers or, you know, help him walk down the hall so his muscles don't atrophy. But just in doing that, 
it was almost like I was able to return the favor. And, and you know, I think that if I were to have lost him suddenly, there would have been almost this regret that I couldn't have showed him how much I cared about him and how much I appreciated all the stuff that he's done for me growing up. So in, in a weird way, that it, it's another odd blessing that you're able to get when you're able to accept what's happening. It's true. If you can be present, if you can do those things, it's a privilege and not everybody can. And I think that's, you know, that's woven together with the kind of relationship that people have with the person who's dying and their, their own personal obligations and realities. And there's lots of, there's lots of factors that can interfere with the opportunity to have the privilege to do what you were able to do. But when you, when you can do it, it's a privilege and a beautiful thing to be able to walk someone home like that. Yeah, no, it seriously is. It is. Um, And, and that is, that is something that I was able to realize at at the time. Uh, You know, I, I, I also in this, in, in my book, I wrote about a friend who died suddenly in a motorcycle accident and, you know, he was 19 years old, uh, living in California for a, a, he was working for a sports tech company. It was, it was a co-op. Uh, he was in third year university. And, you know, he just, just one day he was driving to work and he, he got into an accident. And there were so many conversations that I wished that I could have had with him. Uh, what I did afterwards, um, my friend Gabby, that was his name, he had a twin sister named Sabrina. And I... I sort of made it my obligation to capture as many stories as I possibly could. So me and Gabby, we grew up together. We went to the same high school. We went to this, um, we went to neighboring universities. We were in the same fraternity. We went to summer camp together. And because of that, there was this goldmine of all these stories, all these little anecdotes of him growing up. And I made it my mission to collect every single one of them. And I put on my journalist hat and it was a hat that I didn't even know fitted yet at the time. I was still just a kid. I was writing for the student newspaper and I interviewed his friends and I gathered any story that they would be willing to tell. And I sent it to Sabrina every night at 3 a.m. on Facebook Messenger. And, you know, it was my way of bringing Gabby back, you know, and I think the unfortunate reality is that words and stories are all we really have is all we really leave behind. Uh, and you know, there's so many conversations that I wish that I could have had. And I think in recognizing that I wasn't able to have them, it opened the doors to me having these conversations with my dad when I knew that he was dying. Mm -hmm. You know, and that, that story is so powerful for a lot of reasons because you know, it speaks to the fact that even though Gabby died suddenly and you had some regrets, you were able to process that in a way that was healthy for you, maybe even really touching for Sabrina to have that collection of stories that were gathered and shared with her with that love for her brother, right? Absolutely. You know, healing you, healing her, maybe healing the people that shared the stories with you, right? Right. All of that. And I think that, you know, that's such an example of how if there is a sudden and unexpected loss, we can process it with writing. Because the other thing I talk about, I do a lot of work in therapeutic writing with people for grief and grief and trauma. And um, I talk about letter writing. Even when we can't send letters, letter writing can be really therapeutic. And, you know, so sometimes we need to write it, reflect on it and release. And I often will suggest safely burning the letter and releasing it to the universe or whatever the belief system is. And, and 
And that's an opportunity when we didn't get the chance that you had with your dad to also be with the story and 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 bring the story to a further conclusion that a sudden unexpected death robs us of otherwise. Right. And it's you're able to revisit them through those stories, right? And I think that's you know, no matter how much time you have, you can you're they can be dying over six years or two months, there's always gonna be things that you wish that you could have said. You know, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. But having the opportunity to revisit those moments through storytelling, through writing, um, it brings you closer to them and it's it it puts you in a room with them. And and I think that that's the power of storytelling. It can be so healing and and so transactional. I don't, I don't mean lucrative. I mean, in terms of helping people, you, everybody has a story. Everybody has experienced grief in some capacity. And I think one of the biggest delusions that grief can offer is that you're an anomaly and that you're separate from everybody else. And stories are the antidote against that. They are the solution. They show us how universal this experience is and, and how important it is to bridge together and, and find commonality in our experiences. That's right. When I share my story with you and it touches you, then I've done some healing in the sharing and you do some healing in the receiving. And then the invitation is that you can share too. Yeah, that's what it is. It's an invitation. It's almost like it's permission to share what you think you're not able to, right? Like so many people walk around holding their grief inside and, you know, there's this, I remember thinking, you know, shortly after my dad died that I don't want to bring down anybody around me. You know, I don't want to let them into this. But the reality is that there's so many people that are feeling the exact same and they're quietly suffering. And you sharing your story is giving someone else permission to share theirs. And that could be the most relieving thing in the world. Absolutely. I do some work with grief groups as well. And it's the same exact premise, except, you know, you're maybe doing it within your family. And when people come to a group, a group, they're doing it with not necessarily folks they knew before the group started. But it is it's that exchange of stories that say, this is not unusual. You are not alone. This is an experience we're walking through together and we can lift one another up. Exactly. And that's what it, that's what it does. It, it truly does. Um, it, it, there's something that's so uplifting about it. And it doesn't even, you know, some of these stories, I, I think that there's a, there's a fear sometimes where people don't want to go into the darkness, but in, in sort of navigating that darkness, you're also showing people how to find the light. And I think that that's something that people have to remember too. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much power in it and so much possibility for healing. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. And it's beautiful. I love that you created a book that offers people the opportunity to see into that window and then to learn that that's possible for them too, on all the levels of everything from providing home hospice care to, uh, to sharing stories for healing. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. I think that it's something that people have to, they have to be willing to consider, you know, they have to be willing to consider that's, End-of-life care is something that all of us, well, you know, not all the time, but a lot of the time, all of us can endure. And uh, and that doesn't necessarily need to just be this daunting, scary horizon. It can be something that can be hopeful at the same time. It can be a beautiful opportunity for connection yeah. and for love and compassion to shine through, even with its most difficult moments. 
You know, I'll, I'll, I don't know if, if you're wrapping this up now, but I'll, I'll close on, on one note. And it's that my dad was actually able to deliver a speech after he was buried. What I mean by that is I audio recorded all these interviews and I was able to capture some of his emotional confessions. And, you know, we held a Zoom memorial service after he was buried. And, you know, my dad was able to speak about his own grief. He was able to speak about the pain that he endured, but he was also able to speak about something that he called the transmission of love. And it was this speech that we've since called the transmission speech. And he spoke about how love isn't bound by flesh and bones, how it doesn't end with, end with life, but continues projecting into the future, like an invisible current that knows no distance. And he spoke about how that love never dies. And it keeps moving on from family to family, from his children to his grandchildren. And that same love went from his parents to him to me. And he spoke about the immortality of that love. You know, this was something that I was able to hear from him when I needed to hear it most. And it's really because I was able to sit down with him, accept that this was happening and engage in these really difficult conversations. I absolutely love that idea, that framing of it as, um, the transmission of love. And, um, and I think that we do that in so many ways with our energy in the world, both while we're here, but also as a legacy. He must've been such a special man, Mitch. Yeah, he was. Thank you so much for sharing him and sharing your story with us. Thank you so much for speaking to me. I really appreciate it so much. And I'm looking forward to seeing you at Camp Aaron. Yes, it's going to be a good <laughs> season at Camp Aaron. Um, oh, yeah. That's uh, the camp for kids who are grieving the loss of a parent or a sibling. And it's a place where uh, Camp Air in Toronto is a place where about 100 kids come together every spring and uh, have the fun of camp uh, woven together with the experience of um, excellent grief support and learn that they are not alone in their grief and uh, share stories just like we've talked about today. So thank you. Thanks for, for being a Camp Air and volunteer. Absolutely. It's, it's one of the most meaningful experiences that I've had. So I'm yeah, looking forward too. to the next one. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Mitch. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Grief Stories podcast. I'm your host, Maureen Pollard. Please remember that grief is universal, but every person's experience of grief is unique. While our interviews are intended to help listeners feel validation and reassurance, we realize that these stories may be different from your own. Please visit our website, griefstories.org, for more stories of hope and healing.